Good morning, fellowship. Come on in, find a seat to stand in front of. To, to stand in front of the seat that you find. Yes. Yeah, 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 yeah. Now you get it. Good morning, y'all. We're excited to worship with you. Um, let's just start by singing a familiar old hymn, Come Thou Fount. Just invite the presence of God to uh, be among us and uh, just opening our hearts and our minds to all that he might have for us in this hour together. Let's sing it together. Have a seat. Well, good morning. Welcome to Fellowship. Good to see everyone. My name is Abel, and I am glad to be with y'all today in this new year. A um, couple things as we get the service started. First of all, if you're new, welcome. We, we really see new people as a gift 
to our church body. And we want to do everything we can to make you feel welcomed and help you get connected. And we'll talk a little bit more about that in a couple minutes. Uh, secondly, we have uh, Divorce Care is our ministry to those who have recently been divorced. And uh, if you have gone through a divorce or no one knows someone who has, you know how painful and devastating it can be. And so um, it starts this Wednesday, and so you can sign up using this QR code. Well, if you joined us last Sunday, you heard Mark talk about looking back and remembering what God has done throughout this last year. And he also challenged and encouraged us to think about what is the Lord going to do and pray about, Lord, what are you going to do this next year? And to see God's handprint, see his fingerprints throughout our lives. And uh, I heard a story recently and I uh, want to share it with y'all. So y'all, y'all welcome up Darren Merwin. Yes. Darren and his wife, Emily, um, moved here recently, and it's cool to hear how God has worked in their life in such a short amount of time moving to Northwest Arkansas. Um, so Darren is Mr. Mom this weekend and sharing with you all, so proud of you. Thanks for doing this. Um, give us a little bit about you and Emily's background as it relates to church and, and uh, just kind of since you all have gotten married and before you moved here. Cool. Thanks, April. Uh, so me and my wife have been married nine years, <clears throat> and uh, we come from different church backgrounds. So um, the beginning of our marriage was uh, a little bit difficult to, to find a home church for us. Uh, we went uh, to, uh, she's Catholic, grew up Catholic, and I grew up non-denominational. So we went back and forth trying to figure out what was best for uh, our family. Um, and then about six years into marriage, we actually uh, found uh, a church home, and it was a church plant in Michigan that started with about 40 uh, individuals meeting in a conference room in a hotel. Um, and before we left Michigan, which would have been uh, this past August, uh, it grew to about 400 people. Yeah, so what stood out to me when Darren was sharing is like, man, they, they were part of this church for the first time in their marriage uh, that they were really getting involved and getting prepared leadership-wise. So they move here in August, and, and tell us about uh, y'all's process of church hunting and how you landed here. Yeah, so obviously we've been here six months uh, in Arkansas, so woo pig. I'm learning that still. Um, yeah. Uh, Honestly, the first time when uh, my wife and I uh, went by um, fellowship, it was uh, it was pretty daunting from a size perspective. Just coming from a church that started at 40, grew to 400, um, it seemed big, right? So uh, we honestly were seeking uh, other churches for the first couple weeks. Um, it was uh, so evident um, that the Lord was speaking to us to be here through uh, friends uh, through people that we walked uh, into, um, we walked into a boutique downtown Bentonville. They were playing Christian music, and I went up to the counter. I said, "Hey, like, where do you go to church?" She said, uh, "Fellowship Bentonville." So uh, we found our way uh, to Fellowship Bentonville uh, about 30 days into our move, and uh, the message that day they delivered uh, talking about 
uh, Discover groups, which we were like, hey, this is the best uh, shot for us to understand what the church is about and, and meet new people. So we stepped right in uh, week one, um, and really it's, 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 been a, it's been a game changer. Um, we've met uh, a group of people um, that has now uh, started a uh, community group that I'm helping co-lead. Uh, and they're so persuasive that they even persuaded me to buy a mountain bike, so. You're in. You're in. Woo pig and mountain bike, you're here. Yeah. Um, yeah, it was, it was cool to hear their story of, uh, of just God, those divine appointments, those divine appointments, and, and just jumping into leadership and the, and the courage that it takes. So um, six months uh, co-leading a community group starting tomorrow night, right? So pretty tomorrow awesome. Night. Pretty awesome. Uh, so if someone's new, what would you share with them about uh, getting connected? Absolutely, guys. So um, obviously my story started out in, in Discover Group. This is the best way to get connected, to meet people, uh, to meet people that are in your same life stage. So um, if you have a chance, obviously get into a Discover Group and learn more about the church that way. Yeah, so eight of our 11 Discover small groups this fall have turned into community groups. So it is a good way to get connected, good way to get connected, best first step. And so after service, uh, as you might have noticed, walking in, we have some tables set up with balloons. And if you want to hear about men's group, women's small group, community group, or Discover small group, stop by one of these tables with balloons, and we would love to Talk with you, visit with you. There are a bunch of people out there after service. So let me pray for us as we get going this morning. Lord Jesus, we love you. Heavenly Father, thank you for your guidance. Holy Spirit, thank you for being here with us. Lord, we ask that we would see your fingerprints this year. Lord, would you make connections? Would you bring about those divine appointments that are undeniable? We ask that you would change us this year, that you'd draw us close, and that we'd morph in more and more into the image of Jesus. We ask it in his powerful and precious name. Amen. Great, but your love it was greater. 
At the name of Jesus, we bow and confess. You are worthy to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and praise. At the name of Jesus, we sing and shout 
You are holy, holy, holy. The whole earth is full of your glory. By the blood of Jesus, we are healed. Through the resurrection of Jesus, we live. In the name of Jesus, we offer all we have to the praise of Jesus. Amen. Great the chasm that lay between us. How high the mountain I could not climb. In desperation, I turned to heaven and spoke your name to the night. Then through the darkness, your loving kindness tore through the shadows of my soul. The work is finished, the end is written. Jesus Christ, my living hope. Who could imagine? So great a mercy, what heart could fathom such boundless grace? The God of ages stepped down from glory to wear my sin and bear my shame. The cross has spoken.
Amen. Thank you, Jesus, for that promise. If you leave here today and you remember nothing else, that that promise is that he's the living hope. God, I praise you for being faithful. Father, you're faithful in every single season. The highs and the lows, God, you are so faithful. And I thank you for the gift of this church to me and to them, Lord. I thank you for that gift, and I pray that you will just help us to honor that and not ever walk here into this building without thanking you, Father. God, I pray for Hunter as he brings the word that you have given him. Help us to receive it, Father. Honestly, receive it today, Jesus. In your name I pray, amen. I, too, want to begin just by um, praising the Lord. Say, for the last three days, I have been pretty much down for the count physically and uh, woke up at about 4 a.m. this morning, all on my own, uh, feeling much better. And so I've still got a lingering cough. You might hear that a little bit this morning, but just praising the Lord for healing and for all those that you've prayed for, or that prayed for me. Thank you. 30 years ago... Uh, there was a very important moment in my story that most people have no idea about. I grew up as a late kid, so I grew up in West Memphis, Arkansas, but just about every weekend during the summer, my family would make the drive through Parkin and Earl, uh, through eastern Arkansas, where I grew up duck hunting, and we'd stop at Bulldog Restaurant in Bald Knob, which is a city in Arkansas, uh, we'd, we'd pick up a couple movies at Jerry's Place in Drasco and end up at Greer's Ferry Lake, which some of you may have been to before. And uh, my favorite part of hanging out on the lake on our family's pontoon was hanging, around, hanging out around the cliff area. And I have so many memories of climbing up and jumping off. And by the way, this is me as a child. It's not my children. We do look a lot alike. But so many memories climbing up, jumping off. There's one memory, though, I don't have because I was too young, but my mom has, and she's told me this story uh, many times, and it actually happened on the same day that this second picture uh, was taken. Uh, we were hanging out by the cliffs, and like any three-year-old boy, I loved to follow rules, love it. Um, and so my parents had rules about life jackets and life belts and safety, and they were very diligent, always keeping an eye on us. But this one day, uh, while they were eating lunch, someone had left the gate open on the front of the pontoon, and I decided this was my day to be a big boy. So took off that life belt and went without them noticing and jumped in the lake. Uh, and no one had any idea. So a few seconds go by, and my mom hears screaming coming from the top of the cliffs where we happen to be parked, and it's two people jumping up and down and pointing into the water and screaming something, but she couldn't hear what they were saying. And so she stands up, and she's looking. She's like, where's Hunter? Where's my son? She goes to the front, and there I am in the water, basically underwater, bobbing up and down as a three-year-old trying to stay alive. And my mom jumps in and rescues me, and obviously, you know, she's in tears. She gets me into the boat, and all she wants to do is to thank these two people. And she looks up on the cliffs, and they're gone. She has no idea where they went or who they were. And you might hear that story and go, one, that's crazy, very glad you're safe. Two, it's so distant from you that it's not that, a, that significant of a story for you, right? It is for me. Very significant. For one main reason, it's the story that almost ended the story. Way too early. 
Had it not been for those two people, those two angels, two whoever they were, alerting my mom that I was there, the story would have ended a lot earlier than I or anyone else had planned. I wouldn't be here. The last 30 years wouldn't have happened. Our family would look so much different. And, you know, it's one thing when an individual has a moment like that, when a story almost ends. But what about a whole people group? And there are moments in history where whole races of people, whole people groups, have either been so oppressed, marginalized, whatever, that their, their whole entire race was almost wiped out. It, it's happened many times, and actually we have a moment recorded in the book of Esther where that takes place, where we see the people of God almost completely extinguished, murdered, every single one of them. is a story that almost ended the story. A lot of people don't necessarily know this story super well. You may have heard it. You may know parts of it, but it is a very significant story for you. Think about it. This is the people of God, and had they been wiped out, what would it have looked like for the Messiah to come? What would it have looked like for us to hear the gospel, for that good news to be transferred all the way to us? There's so many questions, and so even though you may not be Jewish, this is an important part of your story because of the way that it almost ended. And so for the next 12 weeks, we're going to spend time in two Old Testament books, both Esther and Daniel. And both of these are at the, basically the end of the, the chronological story of the Old Testament in a lot of ways. They're not necessarily at the end of the Old Testament as we have written, but near the end of the, the chronology. And if you've never had a look in depth at the story of the Old Testament as we watch um, this story follow the Jews and their different generations and how God preserves them, I would encourage you to look in the panorama of the Bible. It's curriculum that has been produced in-house by Robert Cup years ago. He's actually teaching it on campus. He started this morning at the 845 service. He'll do it for 12 weeks. But all of the information is online. It's free. You can download the book. You can follow along, watch the videos on your own time. And it's just a good way to get a healthy perspective of what the story of God is and kind of an overview of it. But simply put, here's, here's kind of where we're at when we get to the book of Esther. After the people of God are delivered out of Egypt, they receive the law, they wander through the wilderness, they conquer the land that was promised to them, they disobey God, they begin asking for judges and rulers and kings, and they really start running from God, and the, the kingdom actually splits in two, and eventually God actually gives them over to judgment to be captured and taken into exile. And so you get to this point in the story where you now got the people of God living in a place that's not their own home, and the people around them, the people in control, the governing authorities, do not follow the God that they worship. So all of this has taken place around the 6th century BC, so that's like 600 to 500 in that range. And after Judah was conquered by the Babylonians at the beginning of this century, You've got the later on during the seven years of exile, a chance for the Jews to actually go back home. They can return. They're, they're given the opportunity to go rebuild the wall, uh, to rebuild the temple, to rebuild this, this, this people and this society that's been broken down. Um, you've got a change of power from Babylonians to Persians, and you have some Jews that decide to sit, stay scattered, that they don't go back home. And these two books actually pick up in these two sections. So the book of Daniel we're going to see here in four weeks actually really hit on this, this exile period. Esther actually appears after they've had a chance to go back, but some 
stay scattered. Now, you're probably noticing something. Esther comes after Daniel in a timeline. So why are we teaching Esther first? I don't know. Uh, this is what I was given. Uh, so this, this is the way they printed the books. Uh, yeah, that's really it. Maybe because it's four weeks and it's a little bit shorter and Daniel's much more complex, and so we're just going to knock this one out. Uh, but in a lot of ways, it's probably too because the book of Esther actually comes before Daniel in Scripture, uh, which is interesting because it doesn't chronologically. And so it's just an important note that not all of the Bible is in chronological order. Generally, it is, but there are sometimes that the genre of the writing will actually pull it out and, and put it in association with other genres, which is what happens here. Daniel definitely has some narrative in it. You'll see there's lots of really cool stories, but because it's such a prophetic book, it's actually going to get pulled and placed with the other prophecies and those prophetic books. And so that's why we've got that, that split. But we'll be back up in four weeks to talk about Daniel. Today's all about Esther. And why would we study this book? Number one, it's like the story I already told you. It's a story that almost ended the story. And you're going to see that it has real implications for us. It's one of the uh, major incidents of anti-Semitism in the history of the Jews. Obviously not the only one, um, but an important one nonetheless for us to know. Because even though we may not be Jewish, this is where the, the good news of God's plan comes through. Uh, number two, it helps explain why Jews celebrate the holiday of Purim. You may be going, what is that? Why do I need to know about it? Um, it's a Jewish festival, um, feast, a holiday that they celebrate. It's the most secular of all the ones that they celebrate. Um, and it has a feel of like carnival. So there's lots of costumes and parades and things like that. It'll be coming up on March 6th. But basically what this holiday commemorates is the story of Esther and the preservation of God's people throughout history and the fact that they were not wiped out. And so again, it's good for us to know that as you may start seeing in the next couple of months, stories of this, news headlines of this celebration in early March. But really, you're probably still going, I'm not Jewish though. Why would I study a Jewish history book that tells this story? And here's one of the main reasons. You're going to have these people living in exile. And it's a way for us to see people who've gone before us to understand stories of what does it look like for the people of God to live in a place that is not their own with ruling authorities that do not agree with them. How, how do we actually live? And you may be going, but we're not in exile. We're in America. Well, Peter says differently. He says about the people of God in general, right? We are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession. And as believers living on earth, no matter where we live, we are foreigners and exiles. We are living in a place that is not our home and that is constantly going to have different values than what we might believe and is constantly not going to follow the God that we worship and follow. So we get to witness the actions of people who go before us. In Daniel, you'll see a lot of people, a lot of actions to mimic. Um, in Esther, sometimes it's more people to learn from than to actually mimic, which we'll, we'll get to that in a minute. But uh, for Esther, you want the good stuff or the tough stuff first? Doesn't matter. Slides are pre-built. So here we go. Tough stuff. Uh, how to teach a narrative series. I love narrative. I love story. I think storytelling is one of the greatest ways to communicate and understand. The, the problem is we're going to take a story and we're going to break it up over four weeks. 
So it would be like you going to a movie and watching 30 minutes and then going home for a week and coming back and watching another 30 minutes and then coming back. So my encouragement to you would be this week, just read the whole book. You could read it in one sitting to, to get an understanding of what's actually happening because it's going to be hard for us to really capture the whole story until we get to the end. It will end very abruptly today. I'm warning you. You'll be like, what's next? And it's over. So that's just how you teach a narrative in four parts. Uh, we also have no New Testament reference to Esther, which is somewhat troubling, that there's not a lot of evidence from other aspects of Scripture of this story and how it fits into the greater story. We don't know who wrote it. So there's some other mysterious things about it. And then this one, we've got questionable morals everywhere in this story, not just from the bad guys. The, the people we would call the good guys and the good girls, we're going to see some decisions that are made that's like, I don't know if that's something that we're supposed to emulate and put into practice. So you see more of that come up. The good stuff. We are going to have a greater understanding of how God works. And I'll go ahead and tell you, it is not always the ways that we would think he would. He doesn't always use the people that we think he would. He can even take bad people and poor decisions and actually use those to propel his plan throughout history. So we'll get to see a little bit of that. There are examples to follow, some to learn from, some to follow, but we get people who've gone before us and who have championed the way of living in a place that doesn't align with our values. And then the third one, y'all, this is a fantastic story. And I don't mean like every aspect of it is honorable or anything like that, but from a literary standpoint, this has everything that you would want. It's kind of like a movie. Let me give you some of the things. There's a beautiful and courageous heroine who begins as an orphan refugee. There's a, a small romantic love thread, a threat to the good side. There's an evil villain who we will all come to hate. There's suspense. There's irony, so much irony that those not in power come to power. Those in power collapse. It's in an exotic place of Persia. There's a reversal of action, poetic justice, and of course, a happy ending once we get to the end. So it's just a really fun, in a lot of ways, story to read, but also a hard story at times. Now, one more thing about this story. There's one detail that is very, very important that, depending on how you look at it, could fall into either of these categories. We'll reveal it as we go and come back to it uh, near the end. But as we jump into these three chapters, yes, we have three chapters to get through, and we're still in the intro. I want you to see on the left side over here, this is a chiasm. If you've purchased the study guide book, it's going to be on page 10. And this chiastic structure is a very important literary technique. And it uses parallelism to emphasize themes. And the whole book of Esther is going to follow this chiasm. So we're basically going to make it through the first third of it today. I'm not going to, you're not going to see this again this morning, but I want you to know that it's there so that when you go and actually study this book, you can reference it and understand kind of where you're at in the story, because I do think that it's really important. But we've got three chapters. We're going to see kind of three movements happening. There's a problem, a pageant takes place, and then a couple of evil plots are revealed. So four weeks, the book of Esther. Here we go. Esther chapter one. At that time, King Xerxes reigned from his royal throne. Who is this guy? the first uh, character that we're going to be introduced to. And Xerxes is the Greek name for the Persian king Ahasuerus, I think, which is too hard to pronounce. So we're using the NIV. and going to use Xerxes the whole time because it's a lot easier to say. But 
Persia, the kingdom that he's ruling in the time of Esther, was a superpower. Yet their power was in question. Because you've got this new king coming in, and he's in the early years of his reign here. And can he preserve the power that they've had? This kingdom is massive. If you think about it from a modern-day perspective, it would extend from Ethiopia all the way over to India. So it's, it's huge. And it would take a ton of effort to keep a place like that unified and all agreeing and following the same leader. So what does he do in the third year of his reign? Well, he flaunts his power and wealth for 180 days. For about six months, he basically goes around and shows everybody as a form of propaganda, here's how powerful I am, here's how rich I am, you better not cross me. And tries to get people to submit and to trust in the power of his kingdom through that. It's followed by a seven-day feast where basically they all just get wasted. It, it says in verse 8 that all of these restrictions on drinking, thrown out the window. Like, drink as much as you want. And I'm sure there were a plethora of sins that came along with that. But here's what we're going to see about Xerxes. And I'll introduce you to each character as we go. Two things to highlight. He's indecisive and idolatrous. You're going to see that he makes so many decisions out of what pleases him and out of pleasure. Is this pleasing to the body, to the eyes? So there's an idolatry there, but also he can't even make those decisions on his own. You've got one of the most powerful people, one of the most powerful kingdoms, and he's going to rely on the persuasion of all of those around him to tell him what to do. And he's always like, yeah, I guess that sounds good. That pleases me. So he's indecisive and idolatrous. He's not a great dude, and he's going to be a major part of the problem that's actually brewing here. So in the drunkenness of this feast, Xerxes summons his wife, Queen Vashti. And he, he says, I want her to come in before me, before the people, before the nobles to, quote, display her beauty because she was lovely to look at. If you've wondered what an evil, sexualized, chauvinistic treatment of women looks like, all you got to do is look at Xerxes and what is happening to the oppression of women in this kingdom. So many of the things that you're going to see, it says he does because it was pleasing to him at no cost or at no uh, care for the expense to others. We're not given a ton of details exactly what he's asking here, but when I piece things together, when I look at his character, the state of this Persian empire, I wouldn't be surprised if he's saying, hey, I want her brought in nude so that everyone can stare at my queen. And, and be jealous and see what I have and look at her body. So what does she do? She says, nope, I will not do that. So this is all we get on Queen Vashti. And I'm going to give you these two words to remember. She's beautiful. Scripture says that she was lovely to look at, but also she is bold and not afraid to stand up to the king and not be treated as a piece of property to ogle at. Because of her unwillingness, this bold move to actually submit to the king's request, she's going to be removed as queen, disregarded. We're not going to hear from her again. And so in a weird way, and this may be a little controversial to say, but Vashti may be the most honorable person in this story. Because this is all we get, just this little snippet. We don't know anything else about her life. She may have been crazy. But here's what we know. She wasn't going to be treated that way and wasn't afraid to say that. So when we continue in verse 17, 
we see the, the male ego on full display here. Fear arises in those close to the king, and they're like, hey, if the queen is willing to do this, what are other women going to do? Across the whole kingdom, like, we've got to put out this fire now. So let's come up with this plan, or we're going to have an uprising. There will be so much disrespect from women across the kingdom. So the people close to the king say, again, if this pleases you, here would be our suggestion. Issue a royal decree that cannot be repealed, that tells people of Vashti's actions, and we're going to remove her from being queen. We're going to take the crown from her. She's never going to be allowed in your presence again. This is his wife. And they're saying, get her out of here because she does not respect you. And if we don't do something this strong, think of what could happen when people start to hear about this. And so the chapter ends with the king agreeing and basically sending out letters and, and telling people like, hey, here's what happened. She's been removed. And the scripture tells us that he sends out this decree to make every man the master of his own household. So there's so many problems brewing already, even in chapter one. Probably the biggest is the oppression of women and what it was like to be a woman in that society. But here's how I would summarize it for the sake of our story. Some of God's people are living under the pagan rule of a corrupt king. And any form of disobedience may lead to their demise, just as we've seen with Vashti. Now, we haven't been introduced to these people of God yet, God's people, but they're coming. They're, they're about to appear. And we've got one chapter down. I'm sure we didn't skip a thing. So chapter two begins with this. Here's the plan that is going to be put on because there's a vacancy for a queen. And so the, the personal attendants say, hey, let's do this. Let's have this beauty pageant. Let's recruit all of the most beautiful young virgins across the land. We'll bring them here to you, king. We will beautify them for 12 months, we'll give them oils and spices and good food and a great place to stay. We're going to make them even more presentable to you. And then the way it sounds to me, each woman would have one night to sleep with the king and may the best one win. Whoever is able to please him the most will become queen. Uh, one of my friends after the last service said, man, when you're talking about that, I was like, kind of sounds like The Bachelor. And... Uh, it's way worse, I assure you. Uh, there's a lot more complicated things going on here. I think a lot of these women were forced into this. And I told you that, you know, there's a lot of questionable morals here. This isn't even questionable. This is just gross and really, really hard to read. And so the pageant begins. And this is where we're introduced to two characters. You've got people going around getting the most beautiful young virgins. And we meet Mordecai and Hadassah. Um, Hadassah's name would be changed to Esther, probably to help conceal her identity in this process. But what do we know about them? Well, they're both Jewish. They're, they're part of this remnant that has remained scattered. They did not go back to the promised land to help rebuild. They stayed, whether that was because they were comfortable or Esther was born into it and she didn't know otherwise. We don't know, but they stayed. And so you've got these cousins who um, seem to have a great relationship. Esther's parents die, and so Mordecai does the honorable thing and actually helps raise her as his own daughter. So he takes this orphan who's related to him and helps care for her in this process. So we know a couple of things about Esther. Yes, she was Jewish. She was orphaned. She was born into exile. 
she was gorgeous with an attractive body, which I think scripture includes that detail to help explain why she was chosen for this pageant. And if you love alliterations, you're loving this slide. If you don't, I'm very sorry. It helps me remember things. Mordecai, I'm remembering that he is generous and good. Not every decision that he makes will be a great one, but that could be said about any major biblical character besides Jesus. But we do see that he is very generous with his life and his time to be able to bring Esther into his household and to help care for her. And we're going to watch the goodness of his heart of even as she enters into this really terrible process, he will care for her from afar and check in on her every single day and wonder how she's doing. And so you've got these two. These are going to be the ones that we really follow uh, for most of the story. These are going to be the most important ones. And one last thing I'd say about Esther, we're going to reveal so much more of her, her decisions, her character, the plan in the next three weeks. But she will be raised up as a deliverer of God's people. And it's in an unlikely way. But God does that so many times throughout Scripture. If you think of Joseph and Moses and David and even the way Jesus came, like God acts in ways that we might not predict and uses people that we may not predict. And so he will raise Esther up uh, to be this deliverer. But as the story continues, we see that Esther is taken, which is an important word for me because as I watch this thing unfold, one of the first questions I have is, why does she participate in this process? And when I see that she's taken, I'm led to believe that she probably didn't have much of a choice given the culture in which she was living. And so she, she's taken uh, to this beauty pageant, and uh, chapter two is a really hard one to read because it does seem like the main event of this thing is sex with the king. And I just keep waiting on her over and over again to step out and to not participate. But she doesn't, and she stays in this process. And I just have to believe that she's making the best decision she can in the situation that she's been put in. So when she's taken, Xerxes likes her a lot. He gives her the best of the best. Seven attendants devoted to her care, the best place to stay, special food. But verse 10 reveals an a very important aspect. She had not revealed her nationality. Xerxes had no idea that she was Jewish, which Mordecai, it says, told her not to say that, probably to keep her safe, because we'll see later on there's still quite a bit of hostility against Jewish people. But every single day, Mordecai would walk near to where she was and check on her. And I have to assume that because he loved her as part of his family, there was incredible sadness watching her go through this process. And the next few verses reveal that Esther, like the other woman, women, gets her one night with the king. And she wins. So uh, as I'm reading it, again, I'm expecting her to sneak in a knife and like stab him and cause like a Jewish uprising or something. But she doesn't. And Xerxes is most attracted to Esther. And there's an aspect to Esther that she is, she is living in this exile world in which she is. And she's living in some ways amongst the rules that are there. And I'm not saying that's honorable, and I'm not saying it's wrong. I don't have enough facts to make that call and to say that. But I can say this. Living in exile, like we do, is not always black and white. And God can end up using situations that use poor decisions to still use those for his glory. So you've got this pageant, and here's the way I'd summarize it. 
A corrupt and carnal beauty contest allows Esther, a Jew, to become queen of Persia. It's a very unlikely rise for an orphan refugee who's still not even in her homeland. But that's what takes place. That's what God uses. So chapter 2, verse 21, um, reveals uh, this next part of the story, which right after this pageant uh, begins and ends, we now see this first plot uh, come, come to light. And it's a quick one. There, there's going to be a plot to, the, to assassinate the king, and it's an inside job. It comes from two of his officers who, for whatever reason, want to conspire to kill him. And Mordecai actually overhears this plot. And so if I'm Mordecai, I'm like, I ain't telling anybody because I want this dude dead, right? He's, he's awful. Like, Mordecai, just let it happen. But Mordecai is looking out for Esther, who's close with the king, and who knows what would happen. And so he actually takes this information, he gives it to Esther, Esther turns it into the king, and important note, she actually gives Mordecai credit, and they find out that, yes, this plot was true, and they kill those two people and snuff it out. And so you've got this, this plot that's now taking place. Mordecai has done some incredible things, and the next verse says that King Xerxes honored Haman, which kind of seems a little bit out of the blue. And there, there's this um, declaration that people should honor and respect Haman, that they should kneel to him to show him respect. And notice, Mordecai refuses. He will not bow down to him. He will not kneel to him and show him this honor. Why? Why does Mordecai not kneel? I'll give you four options. Number one, number one and number two are somewhat similar, but number one, we're told not to worship man, so maybe he's saying, I will not worship him, but it doesn't seem like worship is the word being used here, it's honor, it's to kneel in honor. Number two, we're not to fall at the feet of anyone but God, right? But when we get to chapter eight, you're going to see Esther fall at the feet of the king for certain reasons, so that's probably not it. Number three, maybe Mordecai was racist against anyone who wasn't a Jew, and he just did not like this dude because he was Persian and what he had done to them, which could be the case. It could be any of those three, but I really think it has to do with number four. I think there was an aspect of jealousy here. Who had discovered the plot about the king? Mordecai. And after these officers are assassinated and someone gets promoted and honored, it's this guy named Haman, who we haven't even heard of yet. And I'm sure part of Mordecai is going like, that should be me. You've done nothing. And we're going to see that Haman is just a bad, bad dude. What do we know about him? Well, a couple of things. Anytime someone would see Haman, you know what they would say to him? Hey, man. I'm sorry. I had to. It was there. I had to go for it. Uh, Really, all we see is that from the beginning, Haman is evil and egotistic. He's out for his own good and and pride. He's corrupt. He's a racist, as you'll see very clearly in just a minute. He is the villain. Okay, so if you're following this like a story, this is the bad guy. Okay, this is the one that no matter who reads this story, pretty much everyone agrees. We do not like him. He is evil. In fact, when when Jews read this story, they read the book of uh, Esther every year at Purim, a lot of times acted out. Whenever Haman... Uh, comes into the story or his name is read or anything like that, everybody hisses, just to remember, like, this is the villain. 
And so Mordecai's refusal to kneel to him obviously does not go over well. The king's officials start questioning Mordecai every day, like, why will you not do this? You need to do this. And day after day, he refuses to do that. And so it ticks off Haman. The natural step for Haman would be to kill Mordecai, because Mordecai has disobeyed a command from the king. But he scoffs at that idea, like, no, 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 that is way too easy. I'm not going to let him get off that easy. I'm not going to kill Mordecai. I'm going to kill every single Jew that exists. I'm going to wipe out every single one of them across our whole kingdom. And so he puts this plot into motion, and he actually schedules out a day a year from now. And you may be going, why don't they just, if they want to kill him, just kill him now. Think about how vast the kingdom is. There's no Twitter, there's no email, there's no way to get this information out quickly that like, hey, we're going to kill these people. It's going to take a long time to communicate that. And so he sets a date a year in advance. In a lot of ways, it's like a save the date, the one you don't want to get. He's like, mark your calendars on this date in a year. We're going to kill every Jew that exists. As you can imagine, that caused some major panic. Uh, and the city of Susa was, was bewildered, thrown into ruckus. People didn't know what was going on. So here's how I would summarize this plot, and this is the plot that we'll see take place throughout the story. Out of evil, egotism, and fear, an edict is declared to wipe out the entire race of God's people. And guess what happens next? Got to come back next week. Told you it was going to end abrupt. Uh, for the next three weeks, you're going to see us as teachers work really hard to try to relate this, this story that seems so distant, so out of context for us, to actually relate it to our lives. We'll see themes of the absurdity of wickedness and just how evil and corrupt and crazy wickedness is, the human responsibility in God's work, the fact that there has to be something more than chance that's actually uh, making things happen. But there's one very important detail that I have not covered about this book. And if you've studied Esther before, you're probably going, I can't believe he hasn't said that. He has no idea what he's talking about. Saved it for this. There's one thing that makes this book unique. And when we try to logically think about how God would work, perhaps the most illogical thing about this is who is not mentioned anywhere in the book. We haven't seen him in the first three chapters, and you won't see him the rest of the book. And it's God. Not written in there. No mention of God. No mention of the law. Of, of the sacrificial system of offerings, of prayer. You'll have one mention of fasting. What do we do with that? I think we could run from it and say, like, well, this shouldn't even be in Scripture because God's not mentioned. But if we would trust the canonization process, the putting together of this word, that all of this, including the book of Esther, is God-breathed, I think it leads us to one very important question that we ask about this story, but we also need to be asking about our lives every single day, and it's this. Is it possible that God is working when I can't see it? Is it possible? Is it possible that God moved Mordecai close to that gate to be able to hear about the plot and to preserve the king and the queen? Is it possible that God used this really terrible process to allow Esther to become queen in order to later save his people? Is it possible? 
if you look hard as we study this, you will see the hidden hand of God at work. We'll try to bring it out multiple times. But it's an encouragement to you to go study and find these details. I have skipped so many details in these three chapters that probably you have questions of like, why wasn't that included? Go read. Go study. See where God is at work. But not just in this book. In your own life. As we move into 2023, I'm sure there are many of us, if not the majority of us, that are carrying things in from 2022. Circumstances, situations that we do not want to be in. Or pains that we were hoping to leave that have now followed us. And is it possible that God has not abandoned? Is it possible that he's still at work, not only in your life, but in the lives of those around you and in this church? Even when we can't see it etched in stone, is it possible? I know how I would answer that, and it's simply because of God's faithfulness in in the past in my own life. But I can't answer that for you. But I can give you this encouragement that whenever I ask this question or get to this point, One of the best things that I can do is to worship. In this tension of, God, where are you? I don't see you. I don't feel you. Do you even exist? Like, how are you working? One of the best things that we as his people can do is to say, even though that's what I feel, and even though I can't see it, I will live by faith and I will worship. So as we study this book, and I'm very excited to study this book, that's our hope, is that we'll be able to to, to see where God is working around us to see where God is working in us, and that in all of that, we'll choose to worship. So I want to invite you to stand as we close uh, this morning with just that. Christ is my firm foundation, the rock on which I stand when everything around me is shaking I've never been more glad that I put my faith in Jesus cause he's never let me down he's faithful through generations so why
sweet words. What would this week look like if we just kept repeating those words? Great is his faithfulness. We know that living in this world as exiled people, there are many hurts and hang-ups and things that are heavy. And if you would like to have someone pray with you, we would love to pray with you after the service. And in the foyer today, I have met three or four people that are their very first time here. If you're here for the first time, we would love to connect with you at the connection booth after this service is over. And don't forget the balloons. If you are, need to get into a um, small group of any kind, men, women's community group, discover. We gather. What privilege we have to gather. And then we scatter to tell the world what we know. And as I pray and end today, it really is just the beginning of a week long of worshiping and remembering how faithful God is. Let's pray. Oh, Jesus, what a privilege to gather together. What a privilege to sing of your love and faithfulness. 
with believers. And as we go into our community, Lord, would we be quick, quick to tell of your goodness, of your faithfulness. Keep, your, keep our eyes open to how you are working this week. And we want to join you. We love you, Jesus, in your precious name. Amen. See you next week. Thank you.